Well, good, mo- good morning, brothers and sisters. It is, it is good to gather with you and praise our, our worthy Savior. He is worthy. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the, the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. Our service might officially end with the reception of the benediction, but our, our fellowship continues, so I'd invite you to, to hang around afterwards and, and give us a chance to, to know you. We come now in our service to the preaching of God's Word this morning from Genesis 38. So if you have a Bible, please open with me there to the 38th chapter of Genesis One of the the best ways for you to stay engaged with me this morning is to keep that Bible open in your lap and follow along as we we read, as I explain, and as we apply it to our lives. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew where you'll find Genesis 38 on page 32. Genesis 38, 1 through 30, the immoral brother and the sovereign God. The immoral brother and the sovereign God. Before we read, imagine. Imagine if we were able to show on the large projector screen behind me for all to see all of the worst and darkest moments of your past 20 years. Maybe even the things no one else knows about you. Things that you're not proud of, your thoughts, words, and deeds that hurt others and were sins against God. Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? When will you wake up and find it was just a dream? Well, as unnerving as that experience might sound, that is almost exactly what we have recorded for us this morning in our sermon text in the 38th chapter of Genesis. It is condensed in a a few dozen sentences, 20 years of Judah's most wicked moments. It is one of the Bible's most disturbing and difficult passages to read of, of scandal and its fallout. Sin and its consequences of abuse and oppression. But if we're being honest, none of us have a sterling record either. Our films would also be filled with wrongdoing. And if we could see the truth played for us on the screen, if Genesis 38 was written about us, In such a vivid and short presentation, we might wonder, is there any hope for us in the aftermath of sin? But the hope of this passage moves beyond the ravages of sin to provide transformation, a picture of redemption. And if that is true for Judah, at his worst, it is also true for you and me. Genesis 38 is the story of God triumphing over evil. God is ruling and reigning, even in the midst of our evil thoughts, words, and deeds, accomplishing His good purpose. I want to reiterate the warning we had earlier in our service, especially for visitors who might have missed that. This passage contains sexually explicit content. I'll be careful in how I deal with it, but there is no avoiding it. Especially if you have been the victim of sexual abuse, I would encourage you to process all that this text means with a trusted friend or or with one of the pastors here. After we read, I will lead us in a prayer asking for God's help in our hearing and understanding of His Word. So read with me, Genesis 38 Starting in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. 
Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Dulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me for God's help in our hearing and the proclaiming of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we say that in our sins we are our dry bones. Lord, that we need your spirit, your spirit of life to come and, and breathe new life into us, to, to sanctify us in your word. Lord, even this, your word, is truth. Lord, we praise you that the dark places of your word give us hope. Hope in the dark places of our world and in our hearts. So, Lord, we pray today that you would, by your word, with your spirit, reveal to us your Son, that we might have hope in him. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Well, as is our habit, it is helpful to start with a bottom line up front. 
What is this passage teaching us about ourselves, our sin, and our God? Our main idea today, even through our disobedience, deception, and debauchery, God is at the center working His sovereign will. Even through our disobedience, deception, and debauchery, God is at the center working His sovereign will. I hope that sounds vaguely familiar, but it's been a few weeks. It is intentionally similar to the main idea we studied in Genesis 37, the chapter right before this. In that chapter, we started the tenth and final section of Genesis, the story of Jacob's sons. We said there that the the overall theme of this tenth section is God's providence, his invisible hand guiding all of history. And there in Genesis 37, the story of Jacob's favorite but hated son Joseph, we saw him being sold into slavery. And that even when hated, attacked, and forgotten, God is at the center working his sovereign will. So if Genesis 37 is about God working his sovereign will in the midst of evil done against us, well, Genesis 38 is its counterpart. God working his sovereign will in the midst of evil done by us. Even through our disobedience, deception, and debauchery, God is at the center working his sovereign will. This chapter, like I said, covers something like 20 years. And we're going to have four points as the story stops in on four periods of Judah's story. So first... Disobedience in verses 1 through 11. Second, deception in verses 12 through 23. Third, debauchery in verses 24 through 26. And finally, delivered from darkness in the last few verses. Disobedience, deception, debauchery, delivered from darkness. But I think it's appropriate, even before we get to our first point, To ask the question, why is this story here? Maybe if you go see a a play, a production of the story of Joseph, they usually skip over this chapter. This might seem like a, a random story. We left Joseph in the last part of 37 being carted off and sold into Egypt. So why does Moses, writing this account to Israel years later... After they have left their slavery in in Egypt, insert this chapter here. Well, first of all, we have to clear things up. It's a misnomer to think that the the end of Genesis is only the story of Joseph. We are here studying the generations of Jacob, his sons, and and Judah is among them. When Moses writes this, uh, Judah is the largest nation in Israel. Sorry, largest clan in the nation of Israel. And Judah will be important in the the story of Genesis as well. In fact, in in chapter 44, he will emerge as a compassionate and brave leader. But that is not how it started. Far from it. This is the story of God's grace bringing transformation in darkness to Judah. So if that's the reason for this chapter, look with me again at the first verse. The start of the chapter in our first point, disobedience. Disobedience in verses 1 through 11. Our narrative picks up in the timeline soon after Joseph is sold and Jacob, their father, is deceived. So that's a part of the reason Moses puts that here. Verse 1, at that time, Moses tells us, Judah went down from his brothers. This is how his story begins. And you know, that that might be a good thing, right? His brothers are a crooked lot. They had just planned murder, but ended up only engaging in human trafficking and lying about it to their distraught father. Maybe Judah decides he shouldn't be in their company. But sadly, that's not what the rest of the verse says. Yes, he finds new friends here in verse 1, but they're no better. First, in verse 1, he finds a certain Adulamite named Hira. He shows up three times in this chapter. He seems to be Judah's partner in crime. 
There is only indication that Hira approves of what, a, what Judah is doing throughout this chapter. He's our Sundance kid to Butch Cassidy. Well, first, there's the Dulamite. In verse 2, there's the Canaanite, the daughter of Shua. We don't even know this girl's name, but she is a Canaanite. There should be alarm bells going off in our mind. We've run into this time and time again in Genesis. The Canaanites are descendants of the, the cursed Canaan. They are the occupants of the land that Jacob sojourns in. But all the patriarchs were, were careful not to marry them. Most recently, we saw Esau marry Canaanite wives while his heart and his family line drift like a, a falling leaf away from the promises of God. But what does Judah do in verse 2? Well, he saw and took her. He marries her. Much like Eve in the garden who saw and took the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Judah is just taking what is appealing to the eyes with, with no thought of the consequences. He is brazen in his disobedience to God. In verses 3 through 5, Judah and his Canaanite wife have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. So maybe five years have passed you know, as you, you think about it, Judah has experienced real suffering. He comes from a dysfunctional family. His mother, Leah, was unwanted and unloved by his father. He grew up in a home where he was something of a, a second-class citizen, and his siblings were vindictive. You can understand why he might have wanted to leave that family and start again. How many of, of our stories include some attempt of a, a clean break from our past by our own strength, trying to get away from this family or this place? Of course, it is important to move away from unhealthy situations, especially when recommended by godly counselors. And of course, it is, it is important to be discerning in what friends we have. The, the Bible is candid. Bad company ruins good morals. But here we have Judah turning away from family sin into more sinful company. Company. He doesn't just turn from his family, but he, he also turns from, from God and his promises. You know, a break from the past can either be toward God or simply a new direction toward sin. We, by ourselves, are hopeless to take a step in the right direction in the dark without some light. If you feel like you're in that kind of place now, desperate for a break from the past, turn toward God and His promises. Seek the Lord in His Word and in His people, the, the church. I would encourage you to, to talk to, to someone you came with or you're sitting with, your, your parents, or, or find me in the lobby afterwards. We would, we would love to walk with you. But our scene isn't over. Moses is recounting years quickly. And the next step, maybe 15 years have passed. Enter in verse 6, Tamar. His firstborn heir marries Tamar. Tamar might also be a Canaanite, but I'm inclined to think she's not. Moses doesn't mention her tribe. It's con conspicuously absent here. And in one of those very rare occurrences in this last part of Genesis, God directly intervenes. God, Moses says in verse 7, puts heir to death because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We don't know what Er was doing that was wicked, but God did. God sees and is displeased and puts him to death. But the wickedness of his brother Onan is more evident. So we see here in, in verse 8 that Judah expects his, 
his secondborn, Onan, to, to carry on Er's line. This verse describes a cultural practice known as leveret marriage. If, if a man was to die before he could produce an heir, his brother would take his wife and produce an heir for him. You can see that at the end of verse 8. The command is to Onan, raise up offspring for your brother, heir. Though the child would be biologically Onan's son, the inheritance and the name would belong to his deceased father, heir. You know, this, this practice would become law in Israel in Deuteronomy 25. But it is, it is more than just an important cultural practice. God had promised, you'll remember, Abraham, descendants like the stars, Judah's great-grandfather. God had promised Abraham that, that all nations would be blessed in this family. That promise seems at risk because Er, the firstborn of Judah, has died with no children. It's important for Judah's line to continue. And it will, but not through Onan either. We see here in verse 9 that Onan knew the repercussions of this duty. As long as there, no, there was no heir, Onan would get the inheritance instead. So his motives are made clear here in verse 9. He knew that the offspring would not be his. So he uses Tamar in verse 9. I won't repeat the language of verse 9 unnecessarily, but he repeatedly lies with her and with Tamar's intimate knowledge avoids ever conceiving an heir for his deceased brother. To be clear, Tamar is Onan's wife, but, but he is using her for his own selfish pleasure. He could have foregone the duty and let another relative marry her, like in the, the book of Ruth, a, a whole book built around this practice of, of leveret marriage, where a more distant relative, Boaz, carries on the, the line of the deceased Elimelech. But no, he would rather give the appearance to all that he is doing his duty, but behind closed doors where no one but God can see he is serving himself he wants the inheritance for himself. He is only concerned again with himself and rather abuses Tamar. But this, this too God sees and is displeased and puts him to death. Church, the, the marital bed is intended to be a place to serve one another. The relationship of a husband to a wife is to be marked by the opposite of what we see Onan doing here. It should be marked by self-sacrificial love. Husbands, we are called to nourish and cherish our wives. The command of Philippians 2.3, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than yourselves, has application in the marital bed. The pattern of our love is Christ. A husband's love should be self-sacrificial like Christ's. It is the mind of Christ that looks to the interests of others. So husbands, this week, you're on assignment to ask your wives if you've been selfish toward her. Wives, expect the question and be honest. Oftentimes we need help seeing. Much like Judah here, who seems completely oblivious to his two sons' wickedness, he thinks that their death has something to do with Tamar who must suffer more in silence. In verse 11, Judah directs Tamar to wait for his third son, Shelah, to grow up, to then marry her. But his true motive is hidden. 
Even if Shelah is actually too young now, that's not Judah's real concern. His real concern in verse 11 is after that four, right? Four, he feared that he would die like his brothers. But this isn't hidden from God either. God sees and knows even our wicked thoughts. What we imagined at the start, that, that film showing our worst moments, is seen and known by God. The book of Genesis has already taught us this in vivid color. Do you remember when God flooded the earth in Genesis 6? Because, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God knows. He sees all the wickedness of man, even to the intentions and thoughts of their hearts. In this story, neither Er, nor Onan, nor Judah, nor you, nor I can hide our evil. I am, am sure in a gathering this large and diverse that someone is hiding sin. It is more foolish than trying to hide a lit candle in a dark room with only your hand. When, when people do wrong, they typically do it at night, out of sight. Or if that's not secret enough, inside the walls of your home. Or if that's not secret enough, inside your room with the door locked. And if that's still not secret enough, you lock it in the deepest recess of your heart. But even there, in the most secret place on earth, it is not hidden from God. It is, as David says, wondering where we can flee from God in Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be at night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is nowhere we can hide. God is even present in the deepest recesses of our hearts and knows those vaults even better than you do. The only place to free from God is to God in mercy, to bring out what is hidden into his light for forgiveness. So friends, I encourage you to confess today. It is as we sang, come guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. He is abundant in mercy. You know, the narrator here might tell us, so we know of Er and Onan and Judah's sins, but, but they were hidden to all but God. In the same way, God's hand in this story is still hidden, so to speak. If you remember in Genesis, the last time God has intervened to put people to death after the flood was when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember how he did that? It was quite blatant. Sulfur and fire, it says, from the Lord out of heaven. If you needed more evidence, Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt at a glance. But here there is no supernatural fire from heaven or hole in the ground to swallow air. No angel of death or plague to judge them. There is no indication in the text that, that Judah or Tamar know that it is God who put air or Onan to death. That's another narrator's note. This is his silent, hidden providence accomplishing righteousness. Their swift expiration, the destroyed in a moment, is evidence of what we read earlier in Ephesians 5, 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is what we all deserve in our sins, immediate death. It is what God promised, in fact, to, to Adam and Eve, what they would earn by their disobedience. You will surely die. But the wrath of God, 
that is to come upon the sons of disobedience is held back behind iron bars of his mercy. If God were not rich in mercy, it would have ended at Eden. But God is infinite in patience that some, that you too might reach repentance and salvation. And that is the story of Judah here. God is patient with Judah too. In the midst of evil thoughts, words, and deeds, he is patiently accomplishing his good purpose. And so our second point, brothers and sisters, in verses 12 through 23, deception. Number two, deception. You see that second time marker of our passage there in verse 12, in the course of time. First, Judah's wife dies and he mourns her. Next, he and his friend head to the, the sheep shearing festival. This would be marked by a, a great feast. And next, Judah or Tamar hears of it. What we have in verse 14 is her, her plan, her scheme. She takes off the, the cultural garments that mark her as a widow and puts on a veil and sits on the road to the festival. Why does she do this? Well, there's a four there in the middle of verse 14. All this because she had seen that Shelah has now grown, but she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah's deception, his real motive has been discovered. So Tamar comes up with her own deception. If Judah will not provide his son to give an heir, she will get one herself. So she puts on the the garb of a prostitute, and simply sits in Judah's path. We wonder what kind of man Judah must be if all Tamar had to do was wear a certain outfit and sit in a certain spot. It sounds like his marrying of his first wife, seeing and taking, driven by his appetites. In verse 16, he predictably falls right into the trap and with his friend Hira alongside him for the ride. Judah in this chapter is a contrast to what we'll study, Lord willing, next week to Joseph, who we will see resist tenacious temptation. Will they barter here for the price, a young goat? But since he is traveling without a goat... He leaves his signet, his cord, and staff instead as a, a pledge for the payment later. This is something like him leaving his social security card and driver's license with her. The signet especially would be some kind of unique seal used to sign contracts in, in clay. It's his identification. And so the deed is done and they both go on their way. But again, what is hidden to all is told us by the narrator in verse 18, and she conceived by him an heir. Well, Judah is good to his word. Later in verse 20, he sends Hira, his friend, to deliver the goat. He looks there for what he calls a cult prostitute. Prostitution was a, a common practice of the, the uh, fertility religions, but unfortunately no one knows of her. Because she wasn't a cult prostitute. And we notice in, in verse 23 that, that he stops the search, not because of what is right, but because he is concerned with what other people will think of him. Judah is giving more thought to the opinions of men than the judgments of God. Well, brothers and sisters, these verses teach us two important lessons as we consider in this story of the sons of Jacob our posture towards God's providence. Two lessons about our posture towards God's providence. You might conclude that because God is working His sovereign will in all things, that we should not resist His will by acting to change our situation. You might reason, if our circumstances are fixed by providence, we should we should not resist his will by acting to change our situation. Well, certainly, 
An abiding trust in God's goodness does give us contentment in his providence, but it does not mean that we are to be inactive. We notice here how Tamar takes action to correct a real wrong. She had been lied to by Judah and denied her right. She, frankly, has very few opportunities for redress, but still acts. And we commend her for it. Later, her name will become a blessing in the nations. It is appropriate, brothers and sisters, to act with godly wisdom to change your circumstances. And especially to redress wrongs. God in his providence works his purpose through your actions. So act while trusting. But Tamar also teaches us an important second lesson about our posture toward God's providence. It is never an excuse to sin. God's providence is never an excuse to sin. Tamar was right to take action, but wrong to do so by engaging in prostitution. The ends do not justify the means. We cannot correct one wrong by another wrong. And this is sadly one of the compounding evils of sin. Especially those that suffer abuse often feel like they have no choice but to either endure evil or to return evil for evil. To suffer or to sin. But there is a better way. We are never forced to sin because of the circumstances God has allowed us to be in. In fact, the teaching of God's providence ensures us that it is exactly the opposite. God's providence, his, his ordering of all events and creatures, gives us confidence that we never need to sin. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We wonder what kind of God can guarantee that with every temptation, there will be a way of escape. Only a faithful God who directs all things, even the circumstances where we find ourselves tempted. The, the promise here is that he will also always provide a way of escape. In our faithful God of all providence, there is shelter and grace and power for those who suffer great evil. Power to escape the cycle of sin. Because our God is faithful in providence. So yes, brothers and sisters, act. But don't believe the lie that your circumstances are an excuse for you to add evil to evil. God knows the evil that you suffer even better than you do. And will himself make all wrongs right in time. And sometimes he will even bring the offender to confess and repent of their wrong. What I think we see in the next verses, our third section and third point, when the deception is revealed and the accusations fly. Number three, debauchery. Verses 24 through 26, debauchery. I needed another D word. Debauchery means immor immorality, what Tamar is accused of here. You know, sometimes our sins are known to no one but God. And sometimes our sin is exposed to all. And as, as painful as it might be coming into the light, it is in fact God's mercy. He works his good purposes through it. You see another time marker here in verse 24. Three months later, well, the results of their immorality could no longer be hidden. She is not married, but has a growing belly. And it is reported to Judah. Immoral and pregnant by it. Judah's response there in the end of verse 24 is the height of hypocrisy. Bring her out and let her be burned. 
He is instant in his condemnation of her evil. Technically, she is still betrothed to Shelah, but she couldn't be pregnant by him because Judah himself has withheld him. But Judah also knows that he has committed immorality himself. He is vociferously condemning her for the very evil he has himself committed. Israel, and we too reading this, would know that the law later required both the man and woman to be put to death, but then only by stoning. Burning was extreme and cruel. Tamar, though, seems to be collected because she still has irrefutable evidence of who the father is. She was never interested in getting that goat. She wanted to keep the signet, the cord, the staff, his social security card and driver's license for this very moment when all comes to light. So she sends them by messenger to Judah and asks him to please identify them. If you remember, it's peculiarly similar to what happened last chapter when Judah himself and his brothers did to their father, sending Joseph's cloak by messengers and asking him to identify. He's getting a taste of his own medicine. Well, there is, there is no more way for him to conceal his sin in the dark. It is all out in the light. And Judah is struck at once. Yes, he is able to identify them. He learns in an instant who it was that he met on the road to a name, a name that means two eyes. But there he didn't see. Only now does he see not only who it is, but his own sin. I take verse 26 to be a radical transformation in Judah. You know, the, the patriarchs have all sinned. This is not surprising. Noah got drunk. Abraham couldn't wait on God and lied about his wife. And his son Isaac repeated his father's lies. Jacob deceived his father. But not once have we seen them own their sin like this. He here recognizes his fault. He was wrong to not give her his son, Shelah. Judah had wronged her by keeping Shelah back from her. This is not to say that the Tamar is blameless, but the blame lies first at his feet. He put her in this situation. She is more righteous than he. What I think we see here in verse 26 is godly grief. It is repentance. Instead of continuing to fear man, to do what will be seen good in the eyes of others, continuing to deny his sin in front of all, he acknowledges his sin openly. But repentance is not just the recognition of the wrong we have done. It is also the commitment to not do it again. And so in verse 26, he did not know her again. He bears fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's just the start. We learn later, when we next meet Judah, that he has returned to his father and his brothers. And then in, in chapter 44, Judah demonstrates not selfish love, but self-sacrificial love. Placing himself at risk rather than his brother Benjamin. He is a changed man. And changed here by grace. Changed by the hard exposure of his sin. So I take verse 26 to be the moment of Judah's conversion. He was darkness, but now is light in the Lord. It might have taken 20 years, but God is patient. We can learn to be patient, saints, in praying for the salvation of, of sinners. God has the power to save any. Church, when, when God exposes our sins, it is His mercy. It might feel like the worst thing in the world. It might feel like that nightmare we started with of, of that movie being played, of our darkness moments broadcast for all. 
But frankly, the worst thing that could be said about you and known to all is already public. You and I are so disobedient, deceptive, debauched, and otherwise depraved that the only way that we could be saved was for the sinless Son of God to suffer and die in your place. No other rescue was sufficient. You know, if I wanted others to think highly of me, I would have to conceal the fact that the shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. The good news of salvation must begin with the bad news of how sinful we really are. The truth is that one day all sin will be exposed. It will become public to all. You cannot hide it forever. Numbers 32:23. Be sure your sin will find you out. God doesn't need you to leave behind your signet cord and staff at the crime scene to know that you are to blame. But the window for grace is now. It is today. God in his grace, like he does for Judah here, forgives and adopts even the disobedient, deceptive, and debauched. He pulls them into his sovereign work for our salvation and his glory. You know, our last verses might read like a simple birth narrative, but there is so much more here. Beyond the ravages of sin, after the pain of sin exposed and and repentance, is the certainty that God has been, through it all, at the center, working His sovereign will. So our fourth and final point, brothers and sisters, delivered from darkness. Verses 27 through 30, delivered from darkness. You see that fourth and final time marker there in verse 27? When the time of her labor came. Like Rebecca before her, she has twins. And like Jacob and Esau, the older and younger are reversed. Here Judah's line is preserved. Perez and Zerah are the progenitors are the fathers of the largest and most important tribe in in Israel. Thanks to them, Judah becomes the namesake of their entire race, the Jews. But God is not just faithfully bringing descendants like stars for Abraham. From the mess of this scandal and its fallout, sin and consequences, abuse and oppression, comes the promised royal line of Israel. You'll read later in the book of Ruth, lists Perez as part of the genealogy of King David. And not only King David, but in time, Tamar, Matthew 1 records for us, is part of the line that leads to the one born king of the Jews. The long-awaited offspring of Eve, seed of Abraham, lion of the tribe of Judah, David's root. Yes, even through their disobedience, deception, and debauchery, God was at the center working His sovereign will. You know, redemption through Christ had been planned from before the foundation of the world, and our triune God patiently, intentionally brought that Savior through this mess of Genesis 38. All to teach us this morning that there is no mess of sin that we can make that God cannot redeem. Maybe, maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe that the, the mess that, that you've made or that others have made for you makes you untouchable. That God would rather hold up his nose and pass by far away looking for a more respectable associate. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. God, in fact, delights in rescuing and using the greatest sinners as trophies of his mercy. Not many of us were noble. Not many of us were wise. 
No, we were the foremost. His hand is not too short to save. As great as our sins and weaknesses might be, they are no obstacle to God working His sovereign will. He designs to bring Jesus from Judah and Tamar, and He brings redemption through the foremost, from the darkness as a display of His perfect power and patience. There is no mess that He cannot redeem because he delivers from darkness. Frankly, none of us know all the scenes your films might have. The thoughts, the words, the deeds of darkness that you'd rather hide. But there is a promise. You can have your film removed from the archives with the Oscar-winning performance of Jesus Christ given to you by faith. The life that, that he lived of perfect obedience, honesty, and purity can be placed over your record of disobedience, deception, and debauchery. None of us are saved because we've sufficiently cleaned up our life. No, we are all saved by grace as a gift of his righteousness. As on the cross, he takes your blame and shame in exchange so that we are now faultless to stand before the throne. Not faultless in ourselves, but faultless in the gift of Christ's righteousness. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Saints, there is hope in the aftermath of sin, as dark as it may be, because our God is at the center working His sovereign will. Since it is true for Judah at his worst, it is true for you and me too. God is ruling and reigning, even in the midst of, of our evil thoughts, words, and deeds, accomplishing His good purpose. So the invitation, saints, this morning is to bring our sins out of darkness into the light of our good God, who works the light of His salvation in the darkest corners of our broken world and our broken hearts. Let's go to that God now and pray. Please pray with me. Our Father, we do confess that only you know the deepest darkestness of our hearts. Lord, that those things that we would rather hide are known to you even better than we know. But Father, we take great confidence that you, even in the midst of our disobedience, our deception and debauchery, are working your sovereign will. Father, that our sin is, is no obstacle to your mercy and goodness. That you rule and reign and conquer and redeem even our sin through the power and life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we pray this morning that our hope would be in him. That you would work in us transformation. And Father, for any of us who are hiding sin in the darkness, behind the lie that we can keep it. We pray that you would open up our eyes to your eyes. Or that we would bring it into the light to know your forgiveness and grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.